All right, guys, let's go ahead and get started. Good morning. I'm glad to see all of your faces this morning and glad all of you guys are here. Um, I just want to remind you that uh, that's a really big deal that you're here. Like it means a lot to me and it means a lot to the other people in our church to see your face and to have you participate in our Zoom church for right now. Um, and I'm just really glad you're here. I'm going to encourage you again um, to have your video on, particularly when we're interacting. It's not super important to have it on, I don't think, uh, while you're listening, but when we're interacting with each other, it is. And so um, I really appreciate the people that I've seen do that over the last few weeks. It's really encouraging. So last week, we talked about uh, Hezekiah and Assyria. And we talked about our third principle, which is asking God for help and trusting him keeps us from fear of others. And today we'll be moving on with that same principle, but more related to the topic of police state. And so I'll just confess up front that government and history and uh, all things related to that are not my strength. So I, first of all, had to look up what is a police state. And so I'm just going to share a little bit with you about what I learned in that to begin with. Um, it might be more helpful, at least it was more helpful for me, to think of police state in terms of a totalitarian government. And um, because of the word total in totalitarian, that really helped me understand uh, but it just refers to a political system in which all authority, total authority, is in the hands of the state. So in a totalitarian society, total control of public and private life are government run. And that control is often gained through the use of a police force or military police, thus the term police state. Within totalitarian regimes, the leadership controls nearly all aspects from economic to political to social to cultural. And uh, they control science and education and art, the private lives of residents, and the reach of the government really is pretty much limitless in a police state. Examples of the way that they gain this kind of control and keep this kind of control um, is oftentimes a dictatorship is associated with that. One ruling party, not choices. They rule through fear because it keeps the people from revolting and from protesting and staying silent in order to stay alive really squelches people speaking out and protesting. They have a censorship of the media, and along with that is propaganda in the media and in the government speeches and through education. So a lot of the people are raised from the time they're born not being exposed to any outside beliefs or possibilities, but only what the government wants them to hear and see and know. Criticism of the state's prohibited, and um, sometimes they employ secret police forces. There's a lot of um, encouragement to monitor your neighbors. And so turning them in if they are doing something against the government or if they are doing something prohibited by the government. And then targeting of specific religious or political populations is often associated with that. 
So it's just all about total power, basically. One person or a small group of people having total control over a country. And interestingly enough, most of the time they don't refer to themselves as a dictator. They would refer to themselves more as a prime minister or a president or a king so that they fit in with the other governments around them that seem more positive to uh, the public at large or the world at large, I guess I should say. So examples that you might be familiar with are Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, Mao Zedong in the People's Republic of China, and the Kim family in North Korea. If you remember back last week when we were talking about Hezekiah, we saw that as he prayed about the situation the nation of Judah was facing, he was concerned about two things. He was concerned about God and his being represented accurately, and he was concerned about the people and that they would know God. And as I prepared today, I was particularly interested in Christians who live under a totalitarian government, and I wanted to see what we could learn from them about trusting God and finding hope in the midst of tragedy. And what I learned is that they trust God and find hope by loving God and by loving people. The same thing that enabled Hezekiah to trust God was by loving God and loving people. And it occurred to me that what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is the same thing as what we're talking about here. And how cool is it that Jesus would give that as the greatest command when it's also what helps us to trust and to bring hope in the midst of tragedy? I just think that God is really sweet that way and that the commands that he gives us um, are always for our good. So as I share the stories that, I've, uh, that I wanna share about this today, I want you to look for how these people are loving God, how they're loving others, and how that brings them hope. So how are these people loving God, loving others, and how does that bring them hope? So North Korea is the only country that is considered a present day totalitarian regime. Um, the state of Eritrea, I believe is how you say it, in some sources was considered that as well, but there was some disagreement on that. So I wanna talk about North Korea for a minute. Uh, the regime's control over its people depends heavily on its ability to incite fear and enforce the loyalty of the people to one deity only, which is their uh, regime's leader, Kim Jong-un. According to an article on foxnews.com, the Kim regime in North Korea is more than a political machine or even an authoritarian military police force. It's quite literally a religion, which is called Juche, and that means self-reliance. This religion undergirds the entire regime, and it teaches that the Kim family aren't just political leaders, but they're divine beings. So it's not surprising that Christians in particular are singled out for persecution in North Korea. If Jesus is Lord, then by definition, Kim Jong-un isn't Lord. 
And that idea is so dangerous to the entire regime that it simply can't be allowed to spread there. Therefore, Christianity is treason in North Korea. If North Korean Christians are discovered, they're arrested, deported to labor camps as political criminals or even killed on the spot. And so I found an article in Christianity Today about a young teenage guy that escaped North Korea. He is not a Christian. And so one of the things I wanted you to see and hear is what life is like in a totalitarian regime for the non-persecuted section of the public. But I also want you to see the Christians that he encounters along the way and the impact that they have on him. So his name is Joseph Kim. Joseph obviously is not a North Korean name, but he got that name from a, uh, an elderly Christian woman that took him in and gave him a new name as a new start. He says, when I was 12 years old, my father died of starvation. Our house was taken away to repay a debt that we owed a family friend. Do you hear, do you hear that? Their house was taken away to pay a debt to a family friend. That year, my mother fled to China with my sister in search of food and money. She returned a few months later alone. She had sold my sister into bride slavery, a common fate for young North Korean refugees. My mother believed it would be a better life for my sister than the one waiting back home. She continued to secretly travel to and from China until she was caught by the North Korean government and put in prison. With my whole family gone, I lived on the streets. So this young man between the ages of 12 and 15 has lost his entire family and is living on the streets alone. At age 15, I faced a choice. I could either starve like my father or flee the country and hope to secure a better life outside the borders. Between the certainty of death and the chance of survival, I chose the chance. For a few weeks, I was barely able to beg enough to survive. Then an elderly Chinese Korean woman approached me. I am so sorry, there is nothing I can offer, she said, but you should go to a church. I didn't know what a church was, so she told me to look for a building with a cross. So he goes to this first church and they give him um, 20 yuan, which is $3 in American money. And that gave him enough money to make his way to another city where he goes to a second church. And he says that he hadn't showered in weeks, but the woman that met him and talked to him smiled at him, asked him how she could help him, and then gave him 50 yuan, which was the most money he said he'd ever had in his life. A few days later, I returned to the church, imagining I would receive another 50 yuan. This time, church members offered to let me stay temporarily. This was better than what I expected. I had been sleeping in a windowless abandoned house during the winter and sleeping in an actual room with a blanket was enticing, so I agreed to stay. A week later, I ran into the woman who had given me the 50 yuan. It turned out that she was the pastor's wife. I was scared that she would scold me for lying because he had told her a lie whenever he asked for the money. 
and that she would kick me out, but she let me stay. One afternoon, I heard members of the congregation discussing how the pastor had bad teeth, but couldn't afford dental treatment. I thought that the lady that had given me the money had money to spare. And in that moment, I realized how much that was for her family. Her generous act sparked my curiosity about God. So log that. Her generous act sparked my curiosity about God. In China, hosting a North Korean refugee is illegal. And this church had already sheltered me for more than two weeks. I couldn't stay forever. So one of the members located an elderly Korean Chinese woman living in another city who was willing to take me in. She was a devoted Christian who let me call her grandma and gave me a new name, Joseph. She taught me a hymn, and the hymn put words in my heart that I needed to say. I had been alone in the world. At any moment, the authorities could come and arrest me and send me back to North Korea to starve. I felt there was no one to look after me, no one who could help. What would happen if God withdrew from me too? But that was, what was God's help if it wasn't the churches that sheltered me or the woman who gave me the 50 yuan she couldn't spare or the elderly Christian who let me live with her? Fleeing to China, I had lost hope in human goodness. Finding Christians there, I found that hope again. Caring for strangers, acting compassionately without expecting anything in return, that is the beauty of humankind. That is the beauty of the gospel. So I think you can see in Joseph's story, loving God and loving others all throughout that. The second uh, regime I want to talk about is Nazi Germany. And I'm going to draw heavily from the book, The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Boom. And if you haven't read that, I would encourage you to read it. i read it this week again for probably the 10th time. And it's so encouraging every time I read it and I learn something new. So I'm just gonna summarize her story real quick and then we're gonna uh, move on to lessons. So the Ten Boom family, Corey Ten Boom, lived in Holland with her father, Casper, and her sister, Betsy. Their sister is married and has children as well as their brother is married and has children. The Ten Boom family owns a watch shop and they live above it in a tall crooked house on a crowded street. Casper is a jeweler and watchmaker. And interestingly enough, Corey Ten Boom was the first woman licensed as a watchmaker in Holland. The family oftentimes kept foster children, they kept orphans, they also took in missionary kids when they would go on missionary trips that they couldn't take their children with them. And they were very active in serving the community they lived in. During World War II, Holland was neutral, but Germany invaded them anyway. And the entire Ten Boom family became active in the Dutch resistance movement. And that just meant that they were active in hiding Jews and others that were hunted by the Gestapo. Some fugitives would stay only a few hours. Some would stay a few days until another safe house was found. Some stayed with them permanently. Corey Ten Boom became a leader in the movement, overseeing a network of safe houses in the country. 
And through these activities, it's estimated that over 800 Jewish lives were saved. Eventually, a Dutch informant told the Nazis of their activities and the Gestapo raided their home. They arrested around 35 people, um, including someone from every one of the Ten Boon families. And they, um, but they did not find the Jews that they were hiding. They had the Jews hidden in a place and they looked and looked, but never could find them. So they were able to arrest all these other people, but never found the Jews. The 10 family members were incarcerated, including Corey's 84 year old father, who became ill while in prison and died within the first 10 days of being there. Corey and her sister Betsy ended up at the notorious Robinsbrook concentration camp. And Betsy died there at the age of 59 due to starvation and lack of medical care. William, their older brother, died of spinal tuberculosis that he contracted while he was imprisoned. And his 20-year-old son, Kick, died in a concentration camp. Corey was released from the concentration camp on a clerical error. One week after she was released, all of the women her age were taken to the gas chamber. And she spent the rest of her life helping war victims recover and traveling around the world. She went to over 61 countries in many places where it was illegal for her to go to speak about the hope that she had found that was available in Jesus. See, loving God and loving others. When Holland was first taken over by Germany, she writes this description of what things were like. The true horror of occupation came over us only slowly. During the first year of German rule, there were only minor attacks on Jews in Holland. A rock through the window of a Jewish-owned store, an ugly word scrawled on the wall of a synagogue. It was as though they were trying us, testing the temper of the country. How many Dutchmen would go along with them? And the answer to our shame was many. The National Socialist Bond, the Quisling Organization of Holland, grew larger and bolder with each month of occupation. And a quisling organization is just an organization within a country that works for the um, invading uh, government. And so they're traitors, basically. Some joined the NSB simply for the benefits. They joined because they got more food, more clothing coupons, the best jobs and housing. But others joined it because of conviction because they were convicted that Jews were not as good as the rest of them. She goes on to talk about Jews being identified by wearing yellow stars and then about how they started to disappear. And when she and her family were thinking about whether or not to join the other underground, uh, which was illegal and involved stealing and lying and things that they had been taught were wrong. Corey asks, was this what God wanted in times like these? How should a Christian act when evil is in power? And I think those are two really good questions for us to act in the, ask in the face of any tragedy. What does God want in times like these? What does God want in times of COVID? What does God want in times of 
racial injustice? What does God want in times of economic insecurity? How should a Christian act in times of tragedy or evil? How should a Christian act in a pandemic? How should a Christian act in an environment of racial inequity? How should a Christian act in a time of scarcity of, for some and plenty for others? And I just wanted to stop and pray about that. I want to ask God to show us what he expects from us in times like these. And certainly these are not the only tragedies going on. These are probably the most publicized tragedies right now and the ones we think about the most, but most of us at in, or some of us at any point in time are experiencing our own personal tragedies. And so I want us to think about those as well. So let's pray together. God, I just wanna confess that sometimes I don't wanna know what you think about how I should behave because I don't want to change and I don't want to be uncomfortable and I don't want to risk. And I just pray that you would forgive me for that and that you would transform my heart to want to be the person you want me to be. I pray that as a body that you would show us how you want us to act in times like these, that you would show us what you expect of us and what would bring honor and glory to you and what would be best for your kingdom. I pray, God, that we would spend time thinking about that question and really approaching you and asking you and listening for your answer. And I pray that in Jesus' name. So I just have four quick questions I want to ask. The first one is, how does trusting God in the midst of tragedy and having hope in him relate to our action or our inaction? So let's talk about inaction. I'm talking about this idea that I'm trusting God so I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to leave all of it up to him. But the interesting thing about that is all throughout the Bible, God brings his plan into being by using people. Jesus trusted God, but he also taught and healed and spent time with people and challenged and met people's needs. The disciples trusted God but they also planted churches, fed widows, challenged social norms, were put in jail. The Bible's full of examples of people trusting God while they worked. So we can wear a mask, we can social distance, we can advocate for our friends who don't have a voice because they're black or immigrants or poor. We can say things like, don't do that. It's not okay to talk to her that way. We can say things like, they're having chest pain. You cannot send them home until this has been taken care of. We can also ask questions and be nosy. Where's your mom or dad? Why are you not in school? How did you get that bruise? When is the last time you ate? As disciples, we're not called to be passive. Rather, we're called to be bold and strong and courageous. If there's something we can do, we should do it because we know God wants us to do good. And we know that if we don't, he calls it sin. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. That's James 4.17. If we're not sure if it's a good thing, we need to ask God. 
If we don't know what to do, we need to ask God what to do. See, we do not live in a police state. We have way more opportunities to make changes than those people who do live in a police state. Do we live in a perfect government system? No, but we do have more freedom to make change. We have legal ways to make changes. And God expects us to use these opportunities that we have. But let's be clear. Jesus said that apart from God, we can do nothing. So the other side of the coin is obsessing about everything and trying to control it ourselves. How can we stop COVID? If I can just make everybody do ABC, how can I stop racism? How can I fix homelessness and poverty? If I can just vote right, if I can get the right people in office, if I can just get the right plan, if I can just say the right words to the people around me, listen to enough podcasts, read enough books. We have work to do, but only God can bring about change that lasts. Our obsessing about how bad things are and how we need to fix things is not going to change anything. It's a balance. Let's look at an example from Corey Ten Boone's life. After learning that one of the members of their underground was arrested by the Gestapo, they knew that he would most certainly cave in to the torture that they put him under and reveal information that would compromise them. And so they're discussing in this portion of the book whether or not they should continue their work. And this is what she said. Once again, we considered stopping the work. Once again, we discovered we could not. That night, Father and Betsy and I prayed long after the others had gone to bed. We knew that in spite of the daily mounting risks, we had no choice but to move forward. This was evil's hour. We could not run away from it. Perhaps only when human effort had done its best and failed would God's power alone be free to work. It would have been easy for them to stop doing what they were doing, to say, I trust God and God will handle it. I don't need to do anything else. I've done all I can do. It would have been easy to give in to worry and fear and try to fix all of that themselves. But they didn't do either of those things. They trusted God and they continued to love him and love others with their actions. We follow God's leading one step at a time and we put our human effort in what he gives us the opportunity to do and we trust him to make things happen that only he can do. Second, how should our approach to talking to God look in tragedy? So once Corey and her sister Betsy were put into the Ravensbrück concentration camp, uh, this is something that she relates from that experience. Suddenly I sat up, striking my head on the cross slats above. Something had pinched my leg. Please, I cried. Betsy, the place is swarming with them. Here, and here another one, I wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us, show us how. It was said so matter-of-factly that it took me a second to realize she was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing. 
And I think what you see here is that what prayer looked like is it looked like the first thing they did. It looked like it was natural. It looked like it wasn't a checklist. It wasn't something that they went, oh, we've got to make sure we pray today so that we can be good Christians. It was a conversation with God. It was a lifeline to God. You don't see a bowed head. You don't see a dear God. You don't see an in Jesus name. And I'm not saying that those things aren't important. You heard me do all of those things in the last prayer that I prayed. But what I'm saying is that when prayer is real and prayer is our lifeline, if those things are going to hinder us from talking to God, then we need to lose them. It shouldn't be our last resort and it shouldn't be a checklist. It should be a real conversation. Third, are we really concerned about God's reputation? Uh, remember, this is one of the things that Hezekiah was concerned about in his prayer was about the blasphemy against God. And so my question is, what does that really even mean to be concerned about God's reputation? Well, it means that we're concerned about truthfully and accurately representing him. It means that we're concerned about what's best for his kingdom, about being a blessing to the nations. In an interview with Christianity Today, American-Korean Kenneth Bay, a Christian in North Korea, he was arrested and he was put in a labor camp and he recounted this conversation with the prison guards. At the end of the conversation with the prison guards, someone said, you said God answered your prayers, but if God is real, why are you still here? Valid question, I think. I explained God has different plans. Maybe his plan includes you. How would you know anything about God unless I'm here? The guard said, that's true. I never heard anything like this before. See, he was concerned with portraying God accurately and truthfully. And he was concerned about God's kingdom, which in turn made him concerned even about his enemies. That's loving God and loving people. And then the final question, are we really concerned about others? When we're concerned with God being represented truly and accurately, and when we're concerned with what's best for his kingdom, then we have to be concerned about others. I found this uh, story so striking, and I wanted to share it with you. This, so when they were still harboring Jews, they opened the door one evening, and there is a young mother standing there holding a two-week-old baby. And they know that if they bring her in, the baby is too young to understand being silent. The baby's too young to understand if I cry, will be discovered. And so they know it's a risk for them and everyone else that they're hiding in the house if they bring this young woman in. And so the next morning, they're still doing business in the watch shop in their house. And the next morning, a pastor comes in and she sees their opportunity. And this is the interaction with them. Would you be willing to take a Jewish mother and her baby into your home? 
they will almost certainly be arrested otherwise. Color drained from the man's face. He took a step back from me. Miss Ten Boom, I do hope you're not involved with any of this illegal concealment and underground business. It's just not safe. Think of your father and your sister. She's never been strong. On impulse, I told the pastor to wait and ran upstairs. Betsy had put the newcomers in Willem's old room, the furthest from windows on the street. I asked the mother's permission to borrow the infant. The little thing weighed hardly anything in my arms. Back in the dining room, I pulled back the coverlet from the baby's face. There was a long silence. The man bent forward, his hand in spite of himself, reaching for the tiny fist curled around the blanket. For a moment, I saw compassion and fear struggle in his face. Remember what we've talked about, not giving in to fear. Our compassion for other people can be erased by our fear. Then he straightened, no, definitely not. We could lose our lives for this Jewish child. Unseen by either of us, father had appeared in the doorway. Give the child to me, Corey, he said. Father held the baby close, his white beard brushing its cheek, looking into the little face with eyes as blue and innocent as the baby's own. At last, he looked up at the pastor. You say we could lose our lives for this child. I would consider that the greatest honor that could come to my family. See, when we truly care about other people, then we're able to pray the prayer, Lord Jesus, I offer myself for your people in any way, any place, any time. That's the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving others is what brings us hope in times of tragedy. I see that over and over again in the Bible, as well as in the stories that I read this week. Those things are, not, are active, not passive, and they depend on God's power to make lasting change. So my challenge to you is, how do we love God and love others in times like these? I want you to spend some time praying, searching scripture, and talking to other people about that question this week. That's my challenge to you. How do we love God and love others in times like these? We're going to break out into smaller groups to take uh, the Lord's Supper together. And if you missed that we were doing this and you don't have bread and grape juice, feel free to participate in the prayer time and the fellowship with your group. And you can take communion later if you want to. But don't dip out. Participate. Um, introduce yourself if there's somebody in your group that you don't know. And um, participate in your group. Like pray with your group. Have thoughts for your group. Um, if you're able to participate. While we don't live in a police state, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who do. And we have brothers and sisters in Christ who risk their lives to help those who do. Taking the Lord's Supper is a family celebration. 
And it's a celebration of salvation. It's a celebration of the freedom that we have through Jesus. And so I think it's appropriate that as we do that together, that we spend some time praying. And I'm. this will be, once you get split into your groups, this will be in the chat, so you don't have to write all this down. But I want us to specifically pray for Christians that are persecuted throughout the world, to pray for strength and for wisdom and for hope for these people, and pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done in these places. And then spend some time praising God for Jesus and for freedom and for salvation and whatever you want to praise him for. And then take communion together and then just have a time of fellowship, just like we would do if we were all together at the GDAC this morning. So we're going to split up into groups of probably around seven or eight um, and do that right now. So thanks for being here this morning. I would love to hear uh, what you come up with when you've thought about that question and you've prayed and searched scripture and talked to other people. And so share that with me, share that with other people in the body as a way of encouragement. So after you take communion together, then you can end your group from there. Thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.